Have you ever heard the expression, what is to be, will be? Have you ever been asked that question, do you believe what is to be, will be? Well, do you believe what is to be, won't be? So I guess we need to determine what that expression means, what is to be. Usually, people will make a statement to you if you're in biblical conversation with them, and they see that you believe that the Bible teaches certain things about predestination, that they say, well, you're one of those that believes what it is to be, will be. Again, I say, well, are you one of those who believe what it is to be, won't be? I mean, if there's something to be, it's either going to be or not be, one of the two, right? But what they mean by that usually is that they think that you believe that everything that happens in life, every word spoken, every act, every action, every event that takes place has been predetermined or predestinated of God. And of course, that's totally false. That's not true. We certainly don't believe that. When it comes to predestination, it's really pretty simple. You look in Romans chapter 8, begin verse 28, and Paul says, We know that all things work together for good to them who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose. That verse says that those who love the Lord are those who are called according to his purpose, and on behalf of them, all things work together for good. That's all things under consideration. Then he says, Moreover, whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, they might be the firstborn among many brethren. Here he says that there are those whom he foreknew. That word foreknow there means to know in an intimate manner, an intimate way. We know that God knows all things. There's nothing hidden from the eyes of God. But here's a people that he knows in a special, intimate manner. Both of whom he did foreknow. He also did predestinate. To be conformed to the image of his son. That's what predestination is about. There's coming a day when you will be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and God has predetermined that to take place. And moment whom he did predestinate, that's the second time it's used, he also called. And moment he called, then he also justified. Moment he justified, then he also glorified. And we know glorification hasn't happened yet. Justification has, that took place on the cross. And the calling is an ongoing process. That's simply another expression of the Bible for regeneration or being born again. So he says, More than whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn. That word firstborn means unique, one of a kind. He should be the firstborn among many brethren. God has many brethren, many people in the family of God, and Jesus Christ is the firstborn of them. And more whom he did predestinate, them he also called. That simply means they all shall hear the voice of the Son of God sometime between their conception and death and their earthly journey, and shall be raised from a state of death and sin to a state of life in the Lord Jesus Christ. But when he called, he also justified that took place on the cross. And then when he justified and called, he shall also glorify. That's still out in the future. But that's going to happen. It indeed is going to happen. We're going to be glorified one sweet day. I'm not glorified now, that's obvious. You're not glorified now, that's obvious. But one day we all will be. Then we come to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, it says, According as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy without blame before Him in love, having been predestinated unto the adoption of children, 
to Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his own will. It was the will of the Lord Jesus Christ to have a people that be predestinated unto the adoption of children. You're an adopted child from that point of view. You brought out of Adam's family, put into the family of the Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 4 4 says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that was under the law, that she might receive the adoption of sons. That's what predestination is. It's an act of God to bring you into his family. You're brought into the family by the new birth, but you're brought into the family by the spirit of adoption. And then verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 1. In whom we've obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will. Now there's an inheritance that awaits a child of grace that's been adopted in the family of the Lord Jesus Christ that shall be conformed to the image of the Savior that we'll all come into possession of one day. And Peter describes this inheritance in the first chapter of 1 Peter. He says it's an inheritance that's incorruptible, it's undefiled, and it fades not away. Now, do you know of any earthly inheritance like that? Do you know of any earthly inheritance that cannot be defiled? Do you know of any earthly inheritance that cannot be corrupted? Do you know of any earthly inheritance that cannot fade away? I don't think you do. But there is an inheritance that will not fade away. There is an inheritance that's not corruptible. There is an inheritance that awaits a child of God who are kept by the power of God and you shall come into full possession of it some sweet day. That's what predestination is about. If you notice here, it deals with people and their destination. It does not deal with events. It does not deal with acts or actions, behavior, etc. of people. It simply deals with our eternity. And so, from that point of view, what is to be, it shall be. I can assure you that, without a question. Now, I want to give you three verses here that I want you to keep in mind as we move along. First of all, in Daniel 4 and 35, King Nebuchadnezzar, after the Lord brought him off his throne, after he became exalted with pride in his own self, God brought him off the throne to where he put him into the wilderness, where he ate grass like an oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, and his nails grew like bird claws, and his hair like bird feathers. <laughs> what a sight. Okay. But the Bible says he came to himself. He came to his understanding. He says, I will bless the most high God. I will praise his name. And then in verse 35, he says, for all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. That's you and that's me. It doesn't speak too well of us, does it? All the inhabitants of the earth, there's no exception, are reputed as nothing. But God works his will among the army of heaven, among all the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? Isn't that a marvelous verse? The king says God has a will and God works that will. He works his will among the army of heaven. There's an army of angels in glory. And he works his will among them and among all the inhabitants of the earth. There's not any inhabitant of the earth that can resist the will of God. He works his will among all the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand because he's omnipotent. And who can say in him, what doest thou? He's sovereign in what he does. Then we look in Deuteronomy 46.10. And the prophet Isaiah, speaking here 
That's the mouthpiece of God. It says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I'll do all my pleasure. Now notice it didn't say declared the end from the beginning, it's declaring with an I-N-G, declaring, that's an ongoing process, declaring the end from the beginning. Only God can do that. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which are not yet done, saying, I'll do all my pleasure. My counsel shall stand. God has a counsel and God has pleasure. He says, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Does that sound like a weak God to you? Does that sound like a, a, a God who is wringing his hands in despair? Does that sound like a God who wants to do something, but he's hindered and, he's, and he, he can't get it done because he doesn't have the cooperation of mankind? He says he works his will among all the inhabitants of the earth. He says his counsel shall stand and he shall do all his pleasure. In the book of Habakkuk, I believe it's chapter 2, verse 3. If it's not there, try chapter 3, verse 2. But he says, the vision is for an appointed time, and it shall come to pass. It shall not lie. It says, it, if it tarry, wait for it, for it shall surely come to pass. Now that verse teaches me here that when God gives a prophetic statement, it's going to come to pass sooner or later. Sometimes there were prophecies given that had a short-term fulfillment and that sometimes it had a long-term fulfillment and sometimes it's a prophecy that had both to it. The only way that God could give a prophecy unto a prophet and it come to pass is if it's the God I've already described declaring the end from the beginning. Look at Psalms 115 verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. That's a very simple, short statement, but what, how powerful it is. Our God, where is he at? He's in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. See, he's sovereign. He's done what he's pleased. He has a counsel. He has a will. He has a good pleasure. And anything and everything that God does will always be in harmony with his attributes. That's why it's important that you study the Bible, because studying the Bible, you will study God. You need to study God to see who God is. And if you'll study man, you see who man is. If you've got a proper understanding, you'll see that man is nothing, yea, less than nothing. And God is the omnipotent Lord of glory who sits upon his throne of Lord of Lords and King of Kings. If you see man any higher than the dust of the earth, you just got him a little too high. If you see God any less than his throne in eternity and glory itself, you got him too low. Now, God is declaring the end from the beginning. There are many things that we find that God has declared and it came to pass. And so therefore, what is to be will be. If God said it's going to be, it's going to be. Let's take a look at his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Right after Adam transgressed God's law, we find in Genesis 3 and 15, where the Lord speaks to the serpent. And the Lord says to the serpent, I put enmity, that is strife, that means hostility. I put enmity between thee and the woman, between her seed and your seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Now this prophecy here would come to pass 4,000 years down the road. That's not a problem with God. As it's been said, God looks, up, looks across time like we look across the room. He sees it all. 
And he tells that serpent, I'm going to put in between thee and the woman, between your seed and her seed, but her seed's going to bruise your head. But your seed shall bruise his heels. Your heels may be bruised. You can get over that. But if the head is bruised, the head is crushed, then that's total destruction. We see that fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of Luke chapter 24, after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find he's walking the road to Emmaus. And he's walking with two of his disciples. And uh, there's a lot in this story that we'll just jump over here this morning. I want to get toward the end of it. When he says, all, he says unto them, all things must be fulfilled concerning me that's written in the law of Moses and in the law and in the Psalms. All things must be fulfilled. You go back and you begin in Genesis and work your way through to the end of Malachi. There's more prophecies of the Lord Jesus Christ and they were all fulfilled that would take me weeks and weeks to preach out. But let's just take a look at a few. The very place that Jesus was to be born was prophesied in Micah 5 2 in a place called Bethlehem Ephratah. Where was Jesus born? He was born in Bethlehem. That prophecy was fulfilled. That was fulfilled over 400 years after Micah wrote it. In the book of Isaiah, we find Isaiah 7 and 14, it says, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Thou shalt call his name Emmanuel, which means, by interpretation, God with us. That was fulfilled about 700 years after it was spoken of when Mary, the Virgin Mary, brought forth the Son of God. Now, if you go back to Genesis 3.15, he's teaching there also the virgin birth of Christ because Jesus is the only person who's ever lived on this earth whose conception was that of the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. We all were conceived by the seed of the man. He's teaching the virgin birth as well as the victorious work of the Lord Jesus Christ in Genesis 3.15. So Michael tells us where he's born. Isaiah tells us how, how he will be born. And Isaiah 9, 6, Unless a child is born, thus a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. That was fulfilled about 700 years after Isaiah said it. In 2 Samuel 7 and 14, you can find where the Lord says unto David, he says, Thou shalt die, and shall be gathered unto thy fathers, but I will raise up thy seed after thee, and I will establish his kingdom, and the kingdom shall be forever. And that had a short-term fulfillment in Solomon, but long-term fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the Bible tells us that Jesus would be in the household of David. Genesis 49.10 says, For the scepter shall not depart from Judah, till, or nor the lawgiver between his feet, until Shiloh come. All right, that tells us what tribe Jesus would be born into. It was the tribe of Judah. And that prophecy there, back in the book of Genesis, happens well over 3,000 years later down the road. When Jesus was born, the tribe of Judah was still intact. Hebrews 7, 14 says he sprang out of the tribe of Judah. So we know what tribe he's of. We know what household he's of, the household of David. And then several times, we go to Genesis 22, 18, where the Lord said to Abraham, he said, uh, you know, and thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That seed is, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So he was of the seed of Abraham, of the household of David, of the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, Judah, born of a virgin woman. All that came to pass just like the prophet said that it would be. When Jesus said it, that's like saying what it is to be, it will be. Galatians 4 and 4. 
But when the fullness of the time was come, I mentioned that a while ago, when the fullness of the time was come, what's he mean by that? That means the time had come to be fulfilled. When the fullness of the time has come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that was under the law. Tells you how he was born, what he came to do to redeem that was under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons because we are sons, we cry Abba, Father. The word Abba means father. You know, when a little baby is born, uh, the best news in the world is, uh, is to hear that baby cry, right? If that baby cries, you know that baby's alive. Now, a few days later, he gets old. <laughs> but in the beginning, <laughs> oh, that's joyful news to a mother and a father when you hear that baby cry. And when God borns his people, the Spirit of God, there's something on the inside that cries out. Just like it did with Saul of Tarsus there in Acts chapter 9 when God struck him down the Damascus road. What did he say? He cried out and said, Lord, who art thou? First time he'd ever made that kind of expression. First time he'd ever made that kind of statement. We find numerous prophecies concerning Christ being fulfilled in the Old Testament. If you go to Isaiah 53, that entire chapter is a prophetic picture of the coming of Christ. Starts off by saying, Lord, to whom shall... Uh, uh, who shall believe our report? Whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He shall grow up a root out of dry ground as a, you know, he shall be a, a, a person that uh, uh, be despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Picture of his humanity and, the, and the, the view that people had of him during his lifetime. He goes on to speak how he'd be numbered with the transgressors, make his grave with the rich. That's exactly happened when Christ died on the cross. He died between two thieves. He was taken off the cross and put into a barred tomb of Joseph Arimathea that was a wealthy man. All that was fulfilled to a jot and a tittle. The Bible says in Zechariah, he'd be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. What was he betrayed for? 30 pieces of silver, was he not? When Jesus came into the temple after cleansing it and getting the money changers out of there, we find where the little children began to cry out, Hosanna to the Lord. Bless he that come in the name of the Lord. And they did not like that. And they replied to Jesus, here's not what they say. And Jesus said, yea, I hear, but have you not read, he's talking about Psalms 8, 2, and the mouth of babes and sucklings has perfected praise. That's the fulfillment of Psalms 8, 2. When Jesus come riding in upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass in Jerusalem, as Lord of lords and King of kings, he was fulfilling Zechariah 9 9. It says, Shout, O Jerusalem, and rejoice, O Zion, for thy king cometh, just in having salvation, just in loaded, having salvation, riding upon an ass, the colt, the fold of an ass. That was fulfilled, I'm telling you, to the letter of the word. Every T was crossed, every dot was, uh, every I was dotted. I was going to say every dot was added. But anyway, every I was dotted. And so the list just goes on and on and on concerning the prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death was prophesied. His resurrection was prophesied. Even during his own life, his ministry, he gave short-term prophecies. Remember in Matthew 12, 40, when they came to him desiring a sign, and the Lord said, an evil and adulterous generation desires a sign and requests a sign, but no sign should be given thee except the sign of Jonah be in the belly of the well three days and three nights. And just like he was in the bed of the well three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. It came to pass to a jot and to a tittle. Just like he said. He told his disciples numerous times, the chief priests, scribes, and elders, I shall be betrayed into their hands, and they shall slay me, crucify me, and kill me. And, but he said, I shall be buried, but I shall be raised again after the third day. All those prophecies. And then... There's a prophecy 
that I look forward to is found in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13 when the Apostle Paul said, I will not have you ignorant, brother, concerning them which are asleep in Christ, that you sorrow not, even those which have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we certainly do. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so those that are asleep with Christ shall he bring with them. For this we say to you by the word of God, by the word of the Lord, that Jesus shall ascend with the voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And they which are asleep in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. You believe that's going to be fulfilled? If that's not fulfilled, none of the rest of it were fulfilled. If all the rest were fulfilled, this would be fulfilled. What is to be, will be, depends on what you're talking about. If the Lord said it will be, it will be. There's never been one thing the Lord said would be that didn't turn out to be, just like he said it would. I remember a time when the Lord told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. He says, Know of a surety that our seed shall be a stranger in the land in which they dwell. And it says, they shall be oppressed, they shall be in bondage there for 400 years. The Lord tells Abraham something's going to take place, and it's going to, it's going to take place over a period of time of 400 years. Because why? He's declaring the end from the beginning. We come to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, we find where God delivers Israel out of Egyptian captivity after being down there for 430 years, just like he said. And when they came out of there, it says that they bartered the Egyptians silver and gold. What are they going to buy in the wilderness, by the way? What good's money if you ain't got something to buy with, right? What good is silver and gold in the wilderness? Well, when you study the tabernacle, you'll find every single article of uh, furniture in that tabernacle was made out of gold and silver, every one of them. That's what they used it for. They didn't use it to buy, they used it to construct that tabernacle. The Lord said to be down there 400 years. He's down there 400 years, just like the Lord said. In the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, well, if you go back to Exodus chapter 20, read the Ten Commandments. And if you don't read them in the Bible, you're not going to find anywhere else to read them anymore. You used to could read them if you went in the courthouse. You used to read them if you went in the libraries. You used to read them in the, in the schoolhouse. If you read them anymore, you're going to have to read out of the Bible. And the Lord said, remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt work, but the seventh day shall be called the Sabbath day. He says, neither thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy beast shall do any work on the Sabbath day. And he tells us why. He said, for God created the heaven and the earth in six days and rested on the seventh day, and God hallowed the Sabbath day. Now that's a, one reason I believe in a six-day creation is because God compares work in six days to his work of creation. He, he got it done in six days. He could done it in six seconds. But he took six days. You read about them all there in Genesis chapter 1. And the seventh day, God rested, not because he was wore out and tired. God's never been wore out. He's never been tired. But he hallowed that day and sanctified it and set it apart. Now, Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest today in the New Testament day. Sunday is the first day of the week. Disciples, after the resurrection of Christ, set aside the first day of the week, which is Sunday, in celebration of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Recognition and celebration of that day. That's why we meet on the first day of the week and why we meet on Sunday. But I want to go to Leviticus chapter 25 for just a moment. Leviticus chapter 25, 
you're going to find where the Lord tells them that every seventh year is to be a Sabbath year. It says you to do you work six years, but on year number seven, do no work. In other words, you're going to have the entire year off. Now, who's got a job here this morning? If you do, please let me know where it's at. But who's got a job here this morning where you can walk in and they're going to tell you, now the seventh year you can have the whole year off. Whole year vacation, one time. The entire year you can have off, the seventh year. He says, you do this seven times, that makes 49 years. And then the 50th year comes along, so we call the year of Jubilee. And if you say, what shall we eat if we don't work that seventh year, if we don't sow and we don't reap on that seventh year, what shall we reap? You know what the Lord said? He said, I will command my blessing upon that sixth year. It shall bring enough fruit for three years. That's what you call a bumper crop. He would, he would cause that land to produce enough fruit for three years where they could eat the seventh year and the eighth year while they uh, sowed and came through the ninth year. Now you see, you do that seven times, that's 49. The 48th year, God's going to bless the 48th year with three years. What's going to happen in the 50th year? It's going to be called the year in Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, everybody got their land back that belonged to their ancestors. If they'd lost their land, sold their land, one thing or another, the land came back to them. All debts were canceled. Everything started off fresh. Everything started off new. And the Lord said, if you'll obey my word, if you will obey my commandments, he says, ye shall dwell in the land of safety and ye shall eat the fruit of the land threefold. You know what? They didn't do it. <laughs> That's all they had to do. Just keep God's simple commandments. Just keep them. And they'd have the safety of the land. God would give them safety. And God would fill them up. They wouldn't have to worry about hunger. God would bless them. He would command the blessing to come down upon it. I like that expression. God commanded the blessing. And they didn't do it. There's no record where they ever celebrate a year of jubilee. Can you imagine that? The year of Jubilee comes along, and they blow the trumpet on the day of on the day of atonement. On the day of atonement, the trumpet, trumpet would be blown. And then what's going on? It's the year of Jubilee. Everybody's possessions gonna be returned to them. Whatever you owe is canceled. <laughs> it's the most nearly perfect economic system that's ever been established upon the face of this earth. And the Jewish people reject it. So I'll come over here to Jeremiah chapter um, 29. No, it's a little earlier than that. But anyway, you come in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is going to tell them, he says, you did not hearken, you did not incline your ear, you did not hear me. And therefore I'm going to bring a nation from the north to about the Babylonians. And it says they're going to take you into captivity and they're going to take you into captivity for 70 years. Now, why is that significant? Because they had not allowed God's land to lay out and rest every seven years for 490 years. That means the land did not get to rest for 70 years and it deserved to, be, to have rest. 70 years they did not let the land rest. It took place over 490 years. Time just rocked on and rocked on, didn't it? But see, judgment day was coming. 
Judgment day was coming. And so God raises up the Babylonians, King Nebuchadnezzar, and they come down and take Israel into captivity, and they're going to keep them for 70 years. But that's because what 490 years would have represented for the rest of the land, 70 years. Jeremiah says you're going to be there 70 years. But then in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, the Lord said, after 70 years are accomplished. And by the way, notice this. He says, after the 70 years are accomplished, early in this, he says, I'm going to judge Babylon for doing it because they're a wicked nation. And then after 70 years, he says, I'm going to return you back to your land. He said, if I have thoughts of you, and they're thoughts of peace and not thoughts of evil. Aren't you glad God has thoughts of peace toward us? And to give you an expected end, I'm telling you, he says through Jeremiah, after you're there 70 years, I'm going to bring you out of bondage. I'm going to bring you out of captivity. And I'm going to bring you back to the land in which you once had. And we find that coming to pass in the days of Ezra, in the days of Nehemiah, in the days of Jeremiah. And they rebuilt the wall, rebuilt the city. Was put back in the place where they were at. Now, the Lord foretold all that a long time before it ever happened. And it came to pass exactly just like the Lord said. If the Lord says something's going to be, it's going to be. How long they stay in Babylon? 60 years? 71 years maybe. 69 years? No, 70. Because that's what God said. He didn't say 69 years, 11 months, and 29 days. He said it's going to be 70 years. It's not going to be 70 years in one day. It's going to be 70 years exactly. And it came to pass 70 years exactly. They were in the captivity there in the land of Babylon. Right now, if you're following general Bible reading, you're going to be in the book of 1 Kings, and you're going to see some very interesting stories come to your light in 1 Kings. I'd like to go to 1 Kings chapter 13 just for a moment. In 1 Kings chapter 13, we find where the Lord calls a young prophet to come down to where Rehoboam, excuse me, Jeroboam is at. Jeroboam was the king of the northern tribe, and Rehoboam was king of the southern tribes. So it comes down to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam is the king, but Jeroboam is trying to do the work of the priest. God's law forbid that. God's law separated the throne from the altar. And he's there at the altar trying to do priestly work, and God sends a prophet right there to him, and the prophet comes. He don't even dress the king. He dresses the altar. He said, O altar, O altar. He says, of the household of David, there's a man that's going to be born named Josiah. You know when Josiah was born? 300 years after that. 300 years after he says a son's going to be born, his name is going to be Josiah. God said a man's going to be born and told what the man's name was 300 years before it took place. And he says this altar right here where you are burning incense on, this altar shall break up and the ashes shall flow out. In other words, this, the, your dynasty is not going to be after you, Jeroboam. It's going after the house of David. Jeroboam was so upset about this, he reached forth his hand to the altar and he says, fetch him. You know what happened to his arm? It withered. He couldn't even pull it back in. In other words, he had a stroke. God caused him to have a stroke right on the spot. Then he cried to the man of God, pray to God for me that my arm might be restored. When you study this man's life, the only time he ever called upon God when he was selfish, when he wanted something for his own self. Other than that, he never sought the glory of God. 
He just witnessed three miracles because uh, right at that time, you're going to find when that, that altar is going to burst open and ash is going to flow out of it right there. He witnessed three miracles right there just like that. You go to 2 uh, Kings, I think it's chapter 23, and you're going to find the fulfillment of this 300 years down the road. There's a little boy born, and he starts to reign over Israel when he's eight years old. <laughs> Eight-year-old king. You know he done a good job? He's no one of the good kings of, 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 of Judah, Josiah was. He started reigning when he was eight years old. And one day, he, they found the, found the book, and they're reading in the book, and he reads where the prophet wrote his name in it 300 years prior to that. Now, I want to go back to that story just for a moment, because this is one of the most interesting chapters, as far as I'm concerned, in the entire Bible. That prophet delivered his message, and after Jeroboam could not take him by force, he says unto him, Come into my house and stay a while and eat. And the prophet said, no, I can't do that because the Lord, the word of the Lord came to me and told me when I deliver the message, I'm to leave here and I'm to go back home and I'm not to tarry. So it didn't work. See, the, the devil will come to you as a roaring lion. If that don't work, he'll come to you as a subtle serpent. That didn't work. So he leaves town. But there's an old prophet in town. And here's where it gets real puzzling. There's an old prophet in the town. Now, why didn't God call that old prophet as soon as this young prophet? The old prophet was there. The young prophet lived at a great distance. Well, for one reason, he's Lord. he do what he wants to. He calls the young prophet. But I think you'll see the character of the old prophet was less than desirable. There are some men who witnessed this. They came to the old prophet and told him all about it. He said, where's the young prophet at? He said, he went out of town that way. And so he took off after him. And sure enough, he found him sitting under a tree. And he spoke to him. He says, come home with me. Come home with me. And rest a while and eat and drink with me. He said, no, I can't do it. The word of God told me to leave. I can't do it. He said, well, the Lord told me to tell you it's okay. The young prophet made a vital mistake. He ought to have thought, well, if God is the one who told me to begin with what to do, it'd be God who'd have to tell me again what to do. I'm not listening to a man. But he did. The old prophet lied to him. Deliberately lied to him. That's where it gets puzzling. He deliberately lies to him. He takes heed to it, comes home with him. And as he's eating, then the Bible says, the word of God came to the old prophet. That's puzzling that God would use this lying prophet now to say something true. And the spirit came to the old prophet and says, you tell the young prophet because he has disobeyed my word. It says his carcass shall not lie in the sepulchres of his forefathers back in Jerusalem. He left that place, and as he left, a lion met him, by the way, and the lion slew him. And here's another miracle, another puzzle. Beside that lion was an ass. And that lion did not maul the body of the young prophet. It didn't touch the ass standing by. That's totally contrary to the nature. They came and told the old prophet what had happened. The old prophet took off again, went and found him laying there. Sure enough, there still standing the line that mauled him again with, and there's the ass right beside him, and he's not bothering the body, he's not bothering the ass there. He says, take him up and bring him home and bury him. And he says, when I die, you bury me in the same sepulcher that he's buried in. 
That's a lot of strange language. You know what? See, the Bible gives us the facts, but the Bible doesn't give us the motives. I don't know what in the world was in the, mo the motive in that old prophet's heart. Why he would lie to the young prophet. Deliberately lie to him. And then the Lord gave a message to the old prophet. Lie to the young prophet. And now the old prophet, to me, seems like he's having a problem with his conscience. He takes and gives him a proper burial and tells him, when I die, you bury me in the same place he's buried. When you come up here later on in the life of Josiah, Josiah sees that sepulchre and inquires back, says the sepulchre of the young prophet who gave the prophecy 300 years ago. And you find where Josiah then had all those false prophets. They had them, he, uh, and their sepulchre took them all out, and he burned them all there on the altar, and it broke, and the ashes came out fulfilling a prophecy of 300 years prior to that. Yes. <clears throat> What's your thought now on what is to be, will be? What is to be, will be. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 21, there's a wicked man, a wicked woman named Ahab and Jezebel, husband and wife. Ahab's the king. And Ahab sees a, a vineyard over here that belongs to a man by the name of Naboth. And he wants that vineyard. And he says unto Naboth, he says, uh, I'll buy the vineyard. Naboth's not interested in selling it. He said, I'll, I'll get you another vineyard better than this vineyard here. And swap with you. No, he says, I got this vineyard as my inheritance. It means more to me as my inheritance than a better vineyard or the price you could give me for it. Well, Ahab is all upset. He tells Jezebel. Jezebel says, well, you're the king. She says, I'll take care of it for you. And she got a letter and signed it in the king's name. And they recruited some false witnesses. And the false witnesses came and they said uh, that Naboth had blasphemed the name of God. And they picked up stones and stoned him with And they slew Naboth. Now Jezebel says unto Ahab, says, now get on down there and take that vineyard. I'm glad my wife's not like that. One of the most wicked men and wicked women who've ever walked the face of the earth. But their day is coming. The Lord sends Elijah down there to Ahab. And he tells Ahab, he says, Hast thou both killed and taken possession of Naboth's vineyard? He says, Ye shall die in the very place where Naboth was slain. The dog shall lick your blood up right there. And when it comes to Jezebel, he says, She's going to die and dogs are going to eat her flesh off her bones. Go read it. We come to the next chapter, chapter 22. Ahab recruits a man by the name of Jehoshaphat to go with him out to battle. Jehoshaphat's a good king. He's the king of Judah. Why he agrees to this, I'll never know. But he does. And as uh, they're getting ready to go off to do battle against uh, Ramoth Gilead, the inhabitants there, we find there's 300 prophets that have prophesied to King Ahab telling him he needs to go for God's going to give it in his hand. But Hezekiah says, is there not another prophet we inquire, another man of God? He said, well, there's one man, his name is Micaiah, but he never prophesies good unto me. He always prophesies evil. I don't like him. <laughs> he said, well, let's talk to him anyway. So the man who went to get Micaiah went and get him. He says, now, when you go there, please, please prophesy good. All these other prophets have told uh, Ahab to go to the battle. Please be in agreement with him. He said, I can say only what the Lord gives me. So when he comes before him, he says, here's what I saw. He says, I saw sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And Ahab, see, he says, see, I told you he wouldn't prophesy good unto me, but prophesied evil. He didn't like the prophecy. 
And then he tells them how the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. He says the Lord's going to put a lying spirit into the mouth of a man who's going to come and tell Ahab to go down to the battle. And sure enough, it came to pass just exactly like he said. And so he believes those false prophets over what Micaiah said. So he thinks he can go to battle anyway. So he, he persuades Jehoshaphat to go with him. And he hears what he says, and this, I, I, this is hard to understand as well. He said, I want you to put on my king garments. I'll put on yours. We're going to swap clothes. And Jehoshaphat agreed to do it. Now they're going to do battle against Syria, and the Syrians, uh, the king said to the Syrians, when you go out to battle, I want you to find the king. That's the one I want, and I want you to slay the king. And as soon as the battle goes, they see Jehoshaphat thinking he's the king of Israel, and they come after him. But you need to read in the book of 2 Chronicles this account because it said the Bible says Jehoshaphat cried out to the Lord and the Lord saved him. What a foolish act Jehoshaphat did going to battle to begin with and then putting on the clothes where it looked like he was the king of Israel and God had to deliver him. God had to save him. Aren't you glad God uh, looks over us and, and saves us in spite of ourselves from time to time? Aren't you glad that in all the foolish decisions you've ever made in life that God Almighty overruled it and just came into your life and protected you when you didn't deserve one thing about it? When you made such a foolish decision, unwise decision, a decision without praying to God about it? And then we find a man drew a bow, drew an arrow with his bow, and he shot it like this at random. And that arrow sailed through the sky sailed through the air and found a place right in the man's back right here where the only place he was not protected. You know who it was? It was Ahab. That arrow found its mark. Ahab cried out he was wounded. They put him in a chariot. They took him out to Jerusalem and there he died. And as he washed out the chariot, the dogs came and licked up his blood just like the Lord said they would. Do you believe what is to be will be? If the Lord said it will be, it will be. Well, we hadn't forgot about old Jezebel. We've got to go a little further to 2 Kings 23 to get Jezebel. There's a man by the name of Hehu, and he comes to Jezreel. And we find Jezebel looking out the window up above at him, and she sees him, and she disguises herself. But when Hehu gets there, he looks up, and he sees who she is. He says, who's on my side? And there's two eunuchs there. He says, throw her down. And they took her, and they threw her out. And she hit the pavement. And Hehu's horse and chariots ran over and slew her. Hehu went in the house to eat. He went there and had a meal. He said, I want you to go out. And I tell her, I want you to go out there, and I want you to gather up that wicked woman and go bury her. She's a king's daughter. They went out there. You know what they found? They found the skull of her head. I guess that's the only place it would be. I mean, they found her skull. They found the palms of her hands. And they found her feet. And that was it. You know what happened? The dogs came just like the Lord said. Ate the flesh right off those bones. You say, Brother Lawrence, that's gruesome. When I read it, I rejoice. <laughs> when, when I read it, I'm happy. I'm glad to see that wicked man, that wicked woman be taken up, just like the Lord said. I mean, it came to pass exactly, precisely like the Lord said. One more here this morning, found the book of 2 Kings chapter 7. You're going to find there was a famine in the land in the days of Elisha the prophet. 
And Elisha makes a, a, a prophecy that seemed like it was absurd. See, but this time tomorrow, he says, a measure of wheat shall be sown, uh, sold for a shekel, and two measures of barley shall be sold, sold, sold for a shekel. And there's a man sitting by the king who mocks that. He said, God opened the windows of heaven. You think this could be? He says, you will see it, but you will not eat of it. There's four leprous men. These leprous men in a straight betwixt two. They have leprosy, which means they're just walking dead men. And they said, if we stay here, we're going to die. It's a famine. But if we go into the city, said the Syrians, they, they may slay us. But they finally figured, what do we got to lose? If we don't go in there, we're going to die. If we go in there, we die. We're no worse off. Maybe they'll have mercy on us. So they went in there. But before they went into the city, God caused the noise of horses and chariots when there were no horses and chariots. And the Syrians thought there was a great army on the outside, and the Syrians all just fled and left all their possessions behind. And when those four lepers entered into the city, they found silver, they found gold, they found food, they found drink, and they just start eating, and boy, they, they're just rejoicing. And then they stopped. They thought, you know, we need to share this good news. <laughs> well, we, we don't need to just keep this here. We need to share it. And so they went and they told you know, the brethren about it. And they were skeptical. They thought this might be a trap of the Syrians. But they investigated and found it was true. And they went there and they were so happy to find food that the man who had mocked Elisha, the king appointed him to be the keeper of the gate, the door of the gate. And the people just rushed in and trod upon him and trampled him down. And he died. Just like Elisha said, you'll see it, but you won't eat it. Just like Elisha said. What is to be will be if God said it would be, right? Now you're responsible, I'm responsible for my thoughts, my actions, my behavior. In Galatians, over here in the sixth chapter of the book of Galatians, we find what the apostle says in verse 8. You know, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you sow to the flesh, or flesh reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, shall the spirit reap life everlasting. We're responsible to God Almighty. But if there's something God said is going to be, I can assure you it's going to be because he works his will among the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. He's declared the end from the beginning. And from ancient time to things which are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand, I'll do all my good pleasure. Our Lord is in the heavens. He's done whatsoever he hath pleased. What is to be, if God said it's going to be, it's going to be. Now, if I say it's going to be, <laughs> don't put too much stock in that. When man prophesies, when man declares what he's going to do, I don't have much confidence in a man who goes around telling me all the time what he's going to do without saying the Lord will. The Lord will. Reminds me of the time that man walking down the road with a prize cow and a neighbor was there. He says, where are you going? He says, I'm going down to the, to the village and I'm going to sell this prize cow for that amount of money. And he says, you mean if it be the Lord's will, y'all? He said, the Lord got nothing to do with it. He said, I raised this cow from a calf. I've took care of it. I have stall fed it. One thing, I made the arrangements. I did the negotiations. I established a price. I sold it for a certain price. The Lord got nothing to do with it. After a while, late on the day, 
This man comes back with no cow. The other man says, what in the world happened to you? He said, I was robbed on the way down. Cow took my cow. He says, what are you going to do now? He says, I'm going home, Lord willing. Hope you don't have to learn that lesson the hard way. 